Are we going to continue our study in, in the book of Exodus uh, this evening? In our previous study, we considered the instructions for the Passover. And we saw the connection between the Passover of Exodus and Jesus Christ, who is our Passover. And in our time together uh, this evening, we are going to consider uh, the next lot of instructions that was given to Moses by the Lord. Now our text is Exodus chapter 12, uh, from verse 14 down to verse 20. Exodus chapter 12, and we will read from verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in the selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at even, ye shall eat unleavened bread, until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. Ye shall eat nothing leavened. In all your habitations shall ye eat unleavened bread. Amen. The title for the sermon this evening is Saved to be Sanctified. Let's pray. Father, it is our heart's desire this evening to hear from you. Now, we need to be reproved, corrected, instructed, and encouraged from your word. We ask, Father, for divine assistance to aid in our understanding of your word, and that your word would work in our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, some things just belong together. Uh, when you think of one item, you can't help but to think of another like bacon and eggs, shoes and socks, salt and pepper, up and down, bread and butter, hammer and nail, fish and chips, lock and key. Oh, these things just belong together. And this is the same as Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They belong together. There's so much so that throughout the Bible... The term Passover is used to include both of these feasts, and so is the term Feast of Unleavened Bread. These are two separate feasts, and yet they are often seen as one, two links in the same chain. These two feasts are unique, for out of the seven feasts that were celebrated by Israel, these two are introduced far earlier. They are described and then instituted in in the book of Exodus, in this chapter before us. 
Now, whereas the other five are not prescribed until a much later date. The question is, why are these two feasts coupled together? For they seem to be quite the odd couple, and more like chalk and cheese than cheese and crackers. For one is about blood and sacrifice, substitution and death, whereas the other is about bread and leaven. They seem to be polar opposites, and yet they are coupled together right throughout the scriptures. You know, why do they fit together? Well, let's endeavor to understand what was required with the Feast of Unleavened Bread and why it fits with the Feast of Passover. So let, let's jump into the text. Now, in Exodus chapter 12, the instructions for the Passover are given twice. They're given in the first 13 verses and then after verse 20. And in between these two accounts, you know, wedged between them, is the instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The instructions given for this particular celebration are both specific and also strict. The timing for this celebration is revealed in verses 15, 16 and 18. And this particular feast was to run for the whole Week, It would continue on from the Passover celebration. Now from our previous study we saw that the Passover would really begin on the 10th day of the first month. For it was on that day that the lamb was selected. But it was the 14th day of the first month that was of utmost importance. For it was on this day. That the lamb would be slain and the blood would be applied to the door. And the people would be saved by the shedding and applying of the innocent substitute's blood. You know, a picture pointing you and I to Christ. Now, as an aside, it's important for us to understand that it was only this first Passover when when the death angel passed through. When the Passover was remembered after the original Passover, it was all about remembrance. So that's important for us to remember. But there was much more than just applying blood at Passover. According to verse 8, unleavened bread was to be used at the Passover meal. So after the slaying of the lamb, the applying of the blood... They would gather together for a meal. Now at this time the lamb would be consumed along with the bitter spices. These spices or these herbs were a picture of the suffering in Egypt. And then with this meal they would eat unleavened bread. This is specified in verse 8. And the community would, would consume this unleavened bread until the evening of the 21st day, according to verse 8. And this constituted the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which ran for a whole week. We see in the text that both the first day and the last day of this particular feast was to be a time of worship. One was not to work. These days are set aside as days of convocation. It's a time of worship. 
And according to Leviticus 23, offerings or sacrifices were to be made to the Lord. But the central idea in this feast is that of unleavened bread. And the question is, you know, what is it that we speak of? Now, allow me to state the obvious. It means bread without leaven. Leaven, of course, is yeast. Yeast causes the bread dough to rise. Now, obviously, bread was a crucial part of their diet. In fact, the bread would be made every day. And we must understand that their bread was different to ours. It was not in a loaf and and it wasn't thick, but rather thin, small and circular was more of the idea. So if you picture a small, thin pizza base, and that's closer to the concept. Now, the bread making process at this particular time was something like this. So grain would be sorts, such as barley and wheat, and it would be turned into a meal or a flour type substance. Now this would be uh, produced by, by rubbing or pounding or grinding. And once this flour was produced, it was simply mixed with water, and then it was kneaded into a, a wooden basin or a kneading trough. Now this bread was generally cooked in a bowl or a jar and it would be cooked over hot stones or hot sand. They were the two common practices. Some people also had an oven type contraption. They would dig a hole in the dirt and then they would make a frame out of clay. But generally speaking, you know, hot coals was the most common form to cook the bread. But before the bread was cooked... Leaven would be added to the bread. This would cause it to rise. Now, obviously, they could not go down to Coles or Woolworths or, or Audi for Brother Steve and buy a pack of leaven. They couldn't do that. It had to be produced. Now, one author explains the leaven-making process. This is what they'd have to do. He says, it was made in various ways. You know, one was by airing out dough in the sun after dipping it in wine or vinegar and storing it in a closed vessel until it went sour. Or another method was to knead flour and water, add salt, boil the mix into a porridge and then leave it until it went sour. So this is quite the process. But the common practice was not to make new yeast every day but rather a small piece of bread would be cut off the previous day's batch. Of course, it already contained yeast. And then this small piece would be kneaded into the new mixture. And this leaven would work its way right through the new batch of dough, causing it to rise. And this process would be followed every day. A piece would be cut off, stored away for the following But at this particular week-long celebration, no leaven was to be used in the bread. Only pure grain that was completely untouched by yeast could be used to make the bread. But it actually went further than this. All of the yeast that was within one's house had to be removed. It, It had to be swept out. 
It was as though the leaven was this highly contagious, deadly disease and it needed to be disposed of before it affected everyone. The leaven had to be completely eradicated. I read of the process of some modern Jews who still keep this feast and the process they undertake illustrates the extent that the Jews have always gone to in order to ensure that their homes are free from leaven. You know, one author said this, now, Observant Jewish households begin the painstaking preparations weeks before the arrival of Passover. Our walls are washed and often painted. Cooking utensils are scalded. Clothing is washed with pockets turned inside out. Carpets are cleaned. Vacuum bags are discarded. And even special china dishes are brought for the feast. Everything is scrubbed, scoured, cleaned and aired in preparation. And this happens every single time. I read another story that spoke of fridges and refrigerators completely emptied and scoured. Ovens scrubbed from top to bottom. The whole house turned upside down and inside out in order to ensure that there was no pesky leaven, you know, hiding under the lounge, under the bed, or a few grains in a drawer or the cupboards. This was painful. It's an intense and laborious process. And it's always been this way from the time it was established. And yet it was a process that had to be undertaken for we see not once but twice in the text in verses 15 and 19 that if one ate the leaven or if leaven was found in one's house they would be cut off from the congregation. This is severe. This was a cutting off performed by the Lord's. What it exactly included is debated by the scholars. I tend to think that it at least included banishment from the covenant community, that they were cut off from all the covenant rights and privileges normally offered to an Israelite. So this was a very serious punishment, and hence great effort and energy was spent in order to ensure separation from all leaven. It was completely eradicated like a noxious and deadly weed. Now the obvious question to me is, why, why does this matter? What is the point? And how does this fit with the Passover? Well, there are at least two predominant explanations that help us comprehend the importance, the significance, and the necessity of this festival. Now the first thing that we need to understand is that at the very first Passover, the departure out of Egypt was a very rapid process. There was no longer any deliberation or excuses coming from Pharaoh. But now he's like, no, go, get out. And this is a practical explanation for this particular feast. They had to leave in such a hurry that there was no time for the bread to rise. No one could not wait for departure was near. You know, and I'm sure we can picture this. You know, it's time to leave, and some of the ladies, maybe the men too, are that they're still cooking, that they're waiting for their bread to rise. Can you please give me 20 more minutes? My bread's not ready. 
You know, it's like when you and I have to go somewhere and, and the kids decide to get filthy dirty 30 seconds before we have to leave. You know, this sort of situation. So the Lord in instituting this festival stresses the sudden removal out of Egypt. And future generations would always be reminded of this. And we see this in verse 39 of Exodus 12, which says, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victual. So they left Egypt in such a hurry that there was no time for the dough to rise. But it was not just the suddenness of the departure that is remembered. You know, some notable scholars think there's also a hygiene issue. You know, since they'd used a piece of dough from the previous batch to make the bread for that day, and they did this repeatedly, that harmful bacteria could take hold in, in the dough. So it was good to remove all leaven and start the process over at least once a year. And certainly this could have some merit because God incorporated many rules into the law that related to hygiene and health. And perhaps this may form a part. But the primary purpose of this feast, and this is where I want to land, it is the symbolism attached to it. Leaven was and is a picture of sin. Our Jewish teachers have always understood leaven to represent the corrupting power of sin. And I'm sure we can see the picture. Leaven or yeast is hidden. It works silently and secretly and it spreads and pollutes just like sin. Now, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul use the example of leaven to illustrate sin. In Mark 8.15, Jesus says, And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. This is not talking about the bread that they make, but, but the sin, what's happening on the inside. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, you know, this is the clearest text. Verses 6 and 7 says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. And then he finishes, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. You know, he ties the two concepts together. So it's clear that leaven is used as a picture of sin. And this is the particular imagery attached to this feast. So we have the Passover, which is a picture of our salvation. And then we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a picture of our progressive sanctification, of our growth in holiness, of the mortification of the flesh. You know, one writer put it like this. He said, God wanted to do something more than get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. And that is the point of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He wanted the the corrupting influence of Egypt to be eradicated. 
to sweep away the sin before it had the chance to grow and affect the whole dough. Egyptian idolatry and morality needed to be forsaken completely. Not even a little piece could be held on to, for it would wreak great corruption. And that's the picture within this feast. The Lord did not want to just deliver His people, which is what the Passover pictures, and then they were free to do as they please. But rather it was then His plan and purpose for His people to live unleavened lives. To to fumigate out the sin within and not accept it. To live a separate and holy life, free from the corrupting and devastating effect of sin. The Passover was not the end, but rather the beginning. One commentator said, Passover is about getting saved. It reminds us that we have been delivered from death by a perfect substitute whose blood was shed as a sacrifice for our sins. The Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us what God wants us to do once we have been saved, and that is to live a sanctified life, becoming more and more free from sin. Beloved, we, we have been saved to be sanctified. We do not put away the leaven to be saved, but rather we do it because we are saved. And as believers, there ought to be a concern for personal holiness. That there should be a desire to live a pure life, an unleavened life. For that, my friend, is God's will for you and for me. And unfortunately, there is a deadly disease sweeping through Christianity that many have caught where people think it doesn't matter how I live. I'm saved and now it doesn't matter what I do. I can harbor sin in my heart. I can keep a little bit of yeast. But but that teaching is completely incompatible with the scriptures and the gospel and it's destructive. Now, once we have been redeemed, we are not to tolerate sin, but remove it, eradicate it, mortify it, put it to death. Now, that's the language of the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to break free from the power of sin and not just accept it and tolerate it. And we must understand that our personal holiness matters. And we must sweep out our lives with the broom of the Holy Spirit, for just a small part of leaven affects the whole lump. And we must understand that what you and I often call small sins, they're still deadly. And we mustn't allow them to remain. For just like yeast, it works its way through the whole dough. And this is why God has a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to sin. We do not need to tolerate and accept it. We need to confront it and eradicate it. You know, my friend, is is there any sin in your life that you have simply chosen to tolerate? No, it's it's okay. It's not that big of a deal. It's It's only small. Perhaps it's angry or bitter feelings towards another. Or or the hurtful language that you use towards your spouse or children. Or or the secret lusts that you indulge in that that no one else knows about. And you think to yourself, it's okay, it's not that bad. 
Now, if it gets any worse, then I'll confront it. You know, or maybe it's a business deal that's slightly shady, or cheating on the taxes just a little bit, or perhaps you think your worry or your impatience is not really that big a deal. You know, my friend, is there an area in your life where you have decided that it's okay to be undisciplined and tolerate behavior that you most certainly should not? You know, if this describes you, If you think to yourself that that it's not that big a deal, it's only a little sin, it's not a bad sin, I'll do something when when it gets completely out of control. If this describes how you think, then you are in great danger because sin is like yeast. If you allow it in your life, it will spread and it will corrupt everything. And hence the Bible has a very simple and straightforward message to say about that sin, and that is, get rid of it. Now, if you wanted to eradicate a noxious weed from your farm, you know, you don't remove the majority of it and then think, oh, just a couple of weeds that I've left, that won't hurt. For before long they will multiply and the whole paddock will be overcome by this weed. And that is the same as the sin that we allow to fester in our lives. You know, we all need a clean out to to search our hearts and our minds and and dispose of all the yeast. No, stop accepting the sin and confess the sin. No, don't allow it to spread and corrupt. And my friend, our personal holiness is so important. How we live matters. Now, yes, I know that, that we are not saved by works. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. I believe that with all my heart. Now, I know we will not be perfect this side of heaven. We will still sin, but, but we ought not to accept it. Now, like, like it doesn't really matter. We should not be content with sin. For God has saved us and called us and equipped us to live a holy life. And if we are simply content to live in the habitual practice of sin and we are not bothered by it one little bit, then we must question whether we really comprehend the gospel. Now that's harsh, I know, but it is the truth. Now, beloved, some things belong together. It's bacon and eggs, the shoes and socks, the salt and pepper, up and down, bread and butter, hammer and nail, fish and chips, nuts and bolts, lock and key. These things belong together, and so does justification and sanctification. They are inseparable. We are saved to be sanctified. And may we, by the grace of God, And with the infusion of heavenly power through the Holy Spirit, strive for personal holiness. Remove the leaven, for a a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Don't allow sin to dwell within. For our God doesn't want to just save us, but He also wants to sanctify us. We have been saved out of Egypt. But the question is, is Egypt still living in us? Amen.